I said at the beginning of our service, we continue in this series in the book of Romans because it is such a wonderful summary of what we believe and why it matters. And so we've been going chapter by chapter throughout this summer, just looking at this uh, short book to see the ways in which... uh, uh, Paul, uh, Paul is, is explaining our faith and how God is using Paul to help us understand what it means to walk with Christ. Now, last weekend, we were looking at uh, Romans chapter 8. We actually took the last two weeks to look at Romans chapter 8. And this weekend, we are going to look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, all in one sermon. So I hope you all got coffee out in the cafe. I hope that you uh, built extra time into your weekend, because this is going to be a 60-minute message. Um, But no, uh, in in all seriousness, the reason we're looking at these three chapters together is because they really form kind of one single thought unit. They're they're one single piece of the puzzle. And so we want to take a look at them a little bit more closely uh, to really understand uh, what Paul is saying about our mission to the world. But before we do that, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us this morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed brought us together as your people. Um, That you've put us in this time and place so that you might meet with us, so that you might help us to grow. That you might help us to understand who you are, the love that you have for us, and, and how that's meant to shape our lives. And so Lord, as we once more come before your word, we ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are going to begin in Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 9. If you are using the Pew Bible in front of you, we are on page 946. Page 946 in the Pew Bible. And as I've said throughout this series, if you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to take that Pew Bible with you. Uh, Let that be our gift to you. Uh, It's our desire that you would indeed be studying this book yourself, uh, looking at it together with us, uh, taking notes in the margins, underlining and highlighting key passages. So again, if you don't have a Bible, that's yours. We, We are delighted to give that to you as a gift. But we are taking a look at Romans chapter 9, and, uh, and then uh, the rest of Romans uh, 10 and 11 as well. And in order to uh, deal with this very, very large passage, this very, very complex passage, I think we have to begin by asking a question. And that question is, who does your heart break for? Who does your heart break for? And the reason why I want to ask that question is because I think it's the right one to really understand what Paul is talking about in these three chapters. But furthermore, because this is something that many people often wrestle with. I can't tell you how many times I will sit down uh, with, um, with people and I will talk with them and I will hear a story about a loved one who has fallen away from their faith or a loved one who doesn't yet know Jesus And they're sitting there and they're talking with me and they're asking me the question, you know, Pastor, what do I do? How do I possibly share the hope and the love that I have with this person who seems so hardened to what I want to say, who seems so turned off by the church, who seems so turned off to God? What do I do? 
And the reason that they're anguished over this is because they love that person. They deeply desire that he or she would, would have the same kind of love and joy and peace that they have received from Christ, that they would know for certain the love of God. That that would be something that they can cling to in the ups and downs in life. And ultimately something that they can rest in knowing that they have eternal life. And so they sit there and they're in agony over this. They're wondering, what do I do? How do I help this person understand the depth of God's love for them? And as a side note, just for a moment, uh, if you're sitting there and, and you've kind of come to church this morning or you're listening on the podcast and, and it's because somebody just kind of uh, wrestled you into coming. Um, one of the things that I want to say uh, to you is if, if you're sitting there and you're wondering why is it that my mom or my dad or my family members or my friends keep insisting that I'm coming to, uh, that I go to church? Why do they keep insisting uh, that I get involved uh, with a Christian community? Why do they keep insisting that I read my Bible? This is the reason why. It's because their heart is breaking. It's because they desperately love you. They're not doing it to beat you over the head with the Bible. They're not doing it to be mean. They're not doing it to judge you or to try and get you to obey some list of rules. The reason they're doing it is because they love you. Because they're wrestling with the truths that we've been wrestling with throughout this book of Romans. And they want you to know the hope that they have. They want you to know that that's the love that God has for you. And the reason we start with that question of what breaks your heart, who specifically is, is, is burdening you, who do you love that you deeply desire to know uh, and see come to faith, is because that is where Paul begins in Romans 9. This is the first place where Paul really kind of lays his heart on his sleeve. He begins with these words. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. See, what Paul's talking about is he's talking about his fellow Israelites. The people of Israel who don't yet believe that Jesus is their Savior, who don't yet believe that he is the Messiah. And Paul's heart is breaking for them because of the fact of everything that he's been talking about in this book of Romans up to this point. You look at Romans 1 through 8 and what you learn is you learn that God is a God of love. A God of love and infinite mercy who looks at his broken world and rather than condemning it or judging it, enters into it. He pursues us even when we've turned our backs on him. He loves us so much that he was willing to become one of us, to die for us and to rise again so that we might have eternal life. And Paul's been saying this is amazing news. This is beautiful news. He ends the previous chapter with these words, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's in light of that good news that, that his heart is breaking because his people don't yet believe. His people have not received that good news as their own. They continue to turn their backs on God. And Paul is asking the question, why? And, and what can be done? What, what can I do? These people who've, who've had everything, 
Verse 4 says, you know, that they're, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To them belong the Exodus story and Moses, the kings and the prophets. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He says that they have received all this good news and they still don't believe. And the question is, why and what do I do about it? Why and what do I do about it? And you can hear him just kind of debating with himself and wrestling with that question as his heart breaks for those whom he loves. And he, there are a couple questions that he seems to be wrestling with. The first question he seems to be wrestling with when we look at verses 4 to 8 in chapter 9 is, did God's word fail? I mean, God had said that Israel would be his chosen people. He said that through them would come the Messiah and the salvation of the whole world. So did, he, did his word fail? Did that promise not, not come to fruition? Did something that he say was guaranteed not actually deliver? Well, Paul says no. He says it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham uh, because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But it is the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. See, what Paul is highlighting is he says, look, God doesn't give the promise based on human rules or expectations. Rather, I know that his word has been faithful, that he's fulfilled his promise, because when I look at the whole Old Testament, I see people who shouldn't be included according to the world's standards who are suddenly brought in. That's part of the reason he says it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. When God says, I will have my people Israel and they will be my people, he's not talking just about people who are born into the right family. He says, it's anyone who believes in the promises that I've given, believes that I am a God of mercy and of love, believes that they, that they need forgiveness and that I freely offer it. People who are willing to cling to those promises in every season of life. Those are my people. That's what it means to be a part of my community. And furthermore, as Paul looks at the whole Old Testament, he sees people who weren't born into the right family, who weren't born into one of the tribes of Israel, still being brought in and being made a part of that family. People like Rahab and Ruth, for example. But likewise, he goes on and he says, and, and the way you know God doesn't include people on the basis of human rules is because of how he goes about choosing. He says in verses 9 and following, he says, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, they'd done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but of, uh, because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. See, what he's saying is he's saying in this Middle Eastern culture where the firstborn gets everything, he says, God doesn't choose the firstborn. He chooses the secondborn. He chooses the person who, according to the rules, would have been left out, who would have had no inheritance. And he says, I give my inheritance to those who don't deserve it. I give the promise to people who come second. 
I give my promise to people apart from what they do. My promise is for everyone before they're even born, before they've done anything good or bad, my promise is freely given. And so Paul is saying, look, it's not that God's word has failed. His promises continue to go forward. You look at the Old Testament and you see outcasts and second sons and third sons and losers and rejects included and brought in. He says that only happens because God is faithful. That he is indeed a God who accepts all people, who welcomes all into his family out of his mercy and grace. It's not that his word failed. So then he goes on and he kind of wrestles with the second objection. He's like, so did they not believe because they're destined for hell? Because they're just destined for hell. I mean, in uh, chapter 9, verse 18, he says, So then God has mercy on whomever, on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And he's saying that as a positive statement. God gives mercy to whoever he chooses. But then there, there comes the objection. He says, but then you will say to me, then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? He's dealing with that debate. So does God then choose some people to be saved and some people to be damned? Does he choose some people to go to heaven and choose other people to then go to hell? Is that how this works? And this is an interesting debate that Paul is engaging in because this is a debate that's plagued the church for 2,000 years. That we go back and forth on, so how are people exactly saved? And we kind of waffle back and forth between these two positions of predestination or free will. Predestination says exactly that. It basically says that there are some people who God chooses to go to heaven and everybody else he chooses to go to hell. And you don't get to do anything about it one way or another. Some of you are destined for salvation. Some of you are destined for judgment, and that's just the way it is. But then there's this other side that says, but okay, no, wait, but there's free will, right? So, so it's our job to, to accept God's salvation and to work for it. To say that, yes, I know I need it, and then to do my best to earn it. And actually in the rest of 9 and into 10, he kind of deals with those people who say, so, what, so is it by the law? Do I have to choose for God and, and, and work really hard? And we kind of go back and forth these two positions because we think that those are our only options. It's either, you know, God just made a choice and I have no say in the matter or I just need to work really, really, really hard. And Paul says, hey, we've dealt with the second of those two objections a ton already in this letter. We know it's not by our works, but, but is it true that God destines some people for one destination and, and some for another? And the answer, again, that Paul gives is he says, no, not when you look at what God has revealed to us, because there's a third way of thinking about this. And the third way is this, God gives his grace to everyone. He offers his grace and his salvation to all people. But there are some people who reject it and some people who receive it. God offers his grace to all. That means everybody. It's not that Jesus came and died only for those who are elect and destined for heaven and everybody else is just destined for hell. No, what he's saying is he's saying every single person on the face of the planet has been offered God's love and forgiveness. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that was for everyone. That when the gospel writer John says, for God so loved the whole world, he really meant the whole world. 
But the only way, and the reason he does that is because the whole world needs it. We can't earn our salvation. We can't choose for God. But God initiates with love and with grace. He pours out his mercy. He offers salvation to everybody. But there are some who reject and others who receive. It's this beautiful middle ground. This beautiful tension that Paul says is very faithful to what we see in God's word. And the, and, the, and the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is, at this point is, so why do we even get wrapped up in that debate? Why do we even fall into kind of the predestination and free will debate? Why do we try to figure this out and, and sort it all out? Why is that the question that when it comes to salvation and mission and going and telling people the good news, do we kind of default to these positions? And I think the answer, honestly, when, especially when we default to the predestination view, is fear and indifference. I don't want to go and share my faith with other people because what if they don't like what I have to say and what if they end up rejecting me? Or what if they ask a question and I don't have the right answer? So you know what? I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and, and hope that God reaches them some other way. It comes from a place of fear. Sometimes it actually comes from a place of indifference, of just blatantly not caring. Ladies and gentlemen, I have heard from people in our denomination publishing in theological publications and preaching from pulpits that God chooses some people for heaven and other people for hell and that there's nothing we can do about it so we shouldn't even try. That is indifference. That is hardened heart to the, to the, towards those who have yet to hear the good news. Because what Paul is saying right here and right now is that God's grace is for everybody. That he desires that everyone has a chance not only to hear the good news, but to respond to it. And that when they don't, his heart breaks and so should ours. Because the one thing that Paul says is absolutely clear is what he says in Romans 11.32. What he says there is this, unequivocally. He says, For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. He says, If we're predestined to anything, our broken world is predestined to hell. That we live in a broken world and on our own steam, we can't save ourselves. And that's everybody. We're all in the same boat together. But God in his mercy gives grace to everyone. Because he desires that no one should perish. That all should be saved. And so when he comes and offers his life for us so that we might have eternity. And be assured of our forgiveness, that is for everyone. And so knowing that, the, the next question, the right question that we should be asking is in light of God's heart that all would be saved, what are we called to do? How do we live in light of the fact that our God desires everyone to hear the good news? And the answer that Paul gives to that question is he says, we go. We are sent he says, because if you, this is in chapter 10, verses 9 and following, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, Paul says, when we encounter people who seem to be turning their backs on God and rejecting the good news, our response is not to lose heart, but rather to go with more fervency and pursue them with the love of Jesus. He says that when our world is stuck there, abandoned and, 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 and in squalor, this world that's destined for hell, and we see people around us who don't know the good news, our response is not, boy, I hope God reaches them someday. Our response is to say, Lord, send me. Because God desires that the whole world would hear the good news, but the way that he has chosen to deliver that good news to the nations is through you and through me. That Jesus, after rising again from the dead, tells his disciples, I desire the whole world to experience this salvation. So guess what? You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. We are God's plan. That is how he chose to do it. And so he says, go. Because anyone, anyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord, will be saved. Anybody. Regardless of where they come from or what their family background is like or what they've done or failed to do, how many times they've turned their backs on God before, doesn't matter. The moment they believe and confess, they enter into eternal life. And so Paul says, we go because how can they call on him if they've never heard of him? How can they believe in him if no one's told them? How are they to hear about it unless someone is preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? He says that we are called to go. To go to the world with good news. And the reason why is because if people are still drawing breath, it means that hope is not lost. Chapter 11, he uses this beautiful image of, of God's people as a, as a grapevine. And he talks about his people, the people of Israel, who've turned their backs on God and rejected God, and how as a result of that, they've been cut off from the vine. And Paul says, so, so what is God to do with them now that they've been cut off from the vine? Does that just mean that, that, that that's it, that, that, that it's done, that there's no more hope? No, in chapter 11, verse 23, he says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in, for God has the power to graft them in again. What he's saying is he's saying it's never too late for anyone. It's never too late for anyone, even the person who to our eyes seems the most hardened, the most standoffish, the one who has turned their back on God and church and faith time and time and time again. God says as long as they're breathing, there's hope. As long as their heart beats, there is a chance that their ears might be opened, that their heart might be touched, that they might receive the good news which is for everyone. And so he says, we go with hope and we don't lose heart. We ask the question that's asked by this passage, who does your heart break for? 
And whoever that person is, know that you are sent to that person. That our job as God's people is to go wherever God calls us to go to bring that good news to as many people as possible. And do you know where that begins? It begins in your neighborhood. It begins in the coffee shops that we frequent. It begins in our workplaces. It starts with our friends and with our family and with our loved ones and our coworkers. That when you step out the door this Sunday morning, you are stepping onto your mission field. That when you pull into your driveway at home, your job is just beginning. Because you are in that place to be God's voice to your neighbors. That when you go to get your coffee in the morning, that person who hands you your cup is there in your life because God has sent them to you. That you might share something back that you might give something back, and that is more than smiles and a good day. That is smiles and the good news. And so that when you walk into your workplace, you have a job to do. And it's a lot more than the reports that you file. That you are sent there to be a witness to the people around you so that they can know that God loves them. He loves them deeply. He loves them desperately. And he wants them to have a relationship with him that will last them from now until eternity. Our mission starts where God has put us, in the day-to-day trenches of everyday life. And so when we ask that question, who does your heart break for? Whoever that person is, let the next word from God be, then don't lose heart. If your heart is breaking for them, know that you still have time. If your heart is breaking for them, go. Go with the good news so that they might know. And if they turn their back, no big deal. Go again and again and again. Because even those whose hearts seemed hearted, who seem to have been broken off from the vine, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in for God has the power to do it again. So what does that look like? in our daily lives. A couple of tips. First thing, as you think about the person that your heart breaks for, first step is to pray. To just start praying for them. Pray that when you talk to them that, 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 that a door would open for you to start talking about faith and life together. Pray that, that uh, you would have the right words to speak, that when they ask you questions, you would have good answers. And if you don't have good answers, that God would give you some. That in those moments uh, that, that you're wondering where they are in their relationship with God, you pray, you say, Lord, soften their heart. Take away those calluses that have built up over time. Take away the ways in which they've been hardened by turning their back to you. Soften their hearts so that they can hear, Lord, send other Christians into their life other than me so that they might be surrounded by a whole cloud of witnesses and that those people would encourage them in their walk with Jesus. Lord, I pray, give me the power by your Holy Spirit to speak the good news into this relationship. You start with prayer. But the second thing we do is we listen. We listen to their story can't tell you how many times I've, I've sat down with people and they said, you know, my, my child or my brother or my sister, you know, we went to church together. We grew up together. They, we, they knew all the Bible stories. They were baptized. They confirmed their faith. They went through youth group and then they turned their backs. So, so what do I do? What do I say? How did that happen? 
And the answer that I often give those people is I say, well, if you don't know, you need to find out. If you don't know why suddenly your adult child decided to stop going to church, your first knee-jerk response should be to ask. To say, hey, I'm not asking you this question to make you feel guilty. I'm not asking you this question because I'm going to give you a long lecture about how you should go to church. I'm asking this question because I I genuinely want to know what changed. What's going on in your life? We need to pause and listen to their story. Because the only way we can speak good news into people's life is if we first know about the bad news that they've been hearing. The only way we can speak good news into people's life is if we listen to their story and we find out how is God pursuing them. Then the third thing that we do is we share. We share the hope that we have with them. We talk about the difference that following Jesus has made in our own lives. The ways in which he has provided us with peace and with purpose and with power. The ways in which he has walked alongside us through all of life's seasons to encourage us and to give us hope and a future. We just share our own journey. That's it. We just share the ways in which following Christ has made a difference. Fourth thing that we can do is where there are opportunities, we explain the gospel. And you're probably going to have to do this one over and over and over again. But as you hear their story and you find out what they're wrestling with, you share the good news. You share it clearly. You share it in ways that address their questions. You can even point them back to the book of Romans. That's the reason we've been studying this book. There are so many beautiful gospel promises in this book about what it means to know God and to believe in him and to be saved by him and to walk with him. You explain the gospel and last but not least, you love and you love and you love. That no matter how many times they may say that you're silly for going to church, no matter how many times they may think that the whole Bible thing is ridiculous, you love them anyways. And you let them know it. Both in your words and in your actions, you go out of your way to share that love in tangible expressions of service. This is what it means to be his witnesses. And the reason we do it is because we trust that God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. That when we pray and when we step into those relationships with those people who know us best, God is there to do the miraculous. One of my favorite quotes about this comes from this book, Bringing the Gospel Home by Randy Newman. Subtitle is great. It says, witnessing to family members, close friends, and others who know you really well. And what he says is he says, once we realize that evangelism occurs in the realm of the miraculous, we start praying more faithfully, trusting more wholeheartedly, and proclaiming more gently. When we relinquish trust in our ability to persuade and latch onto God's power to save, we find hope beyond explanation. You see, we go with the good news because we desire that the halls of heavens would be full and that hell would be depopulated. We go, we enter into the world because we recognize that God has sent us with a mission to the people around us. That his grace and his love and his mercy are for them too, not just for us. And so we go in confidence knowing that the Holy Spirit goes with us. That that salvation message is good enough. And that all God asks of us is that we would trust him and go where he sends us. Be witnesses where he's placed us. Because when we do that, we are now participating in the work 
of miracles, of seeing people who are hardened, people who had turned their backs on God, suddenly come alive in the knowledge that they are desperately loved by the God who died for them and who rose again so that they might have eternal life. That is our mission. So who does your heart break for? Don't lose heart. The message of this text is go. Go knowing that you bring with you the words of life. Words that were given to us by Christ. The best message that we can possibly deliver to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. That God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life eternally. It's in the name of Jesus Christ who is indeed our Savior, our Lord, and the hope of all the world that we say, Amen.